Orange, uh, as a color, combines the energy of red and the happiness of yellow. Uh, orange is the color of passion and enthusiasm. And years ago, when we were getting ready for our first adoption, we weren't exactly sure uh, what the gender of the baby uh, uh, that would soon be Sam. We, we didn't know what the gender was going to be. And so we were going for uh, kind of a, a gender neutral color. And so we decided to paint his room orange. Little did we know uh, <laughs> that that color uh, would soon uh, identify his passion. Our, our son, our son Sam, is a passionate, uh, cool, passionate, passionate kid. We started uh, noticing it when, when he was really young. We'd be at the store with him. I mean, really, really young. And uh, we'd be at the store with him, and the clerk at the store uh, would show him a little attention and like give him a sucker. And he turned to the he turned to the clerk and he said, "I love you." And she'd be kind of taken back by it, right? You know, it's awkward for the parents, you know. You don't want to say, I don't think he really means that. You know, you don't want to say that. But, uh, you, you know, because uh, he, he, he did in the moment. He, he was just a really passionate kid. You can imagine kind of what that passion was like for us uh, a few years ago at Disney World. Uh, when he was four years old, uh, we took him to Disney World. And Monday was the best day ever. And Tuesday was the best day ever. And Wednesday, he had a massive fit, and that didn't go so well. But Thursday, Thursday was the best day ever. Friday was, you know, just the, the best day of his life. And even now, he continues to be kind of a kid of passion. You know, drama class loves it, and choir loves it, Legos and reading. He's, he's passionate, and there's a lot, a lot of positives that come with that. But sometimes big feelings can come out in the other direction, it's too, in the other direction too, when he doesn't want to do something or he's not excited, excited about something something. Passion can demonstrate itself there as well, right? Um, and so passion is just kind of that way. So I want to start out with this question for you. What is it that you're passionate about? What are you passionate about? Uh, is it a sports team? Uh, I'm cut from that cloth a little bit. Cheryl and I um, have uh, made our children upset before cheering for the Michigan State Spartans, you know, they've been taken aback by our passion. Is it a sports team? Uh, is it a holiday? Uh, I first started noticing this over the summer. Like I started noticing some uh, memes in July about Christmas. That, hey, we're halfway there, right? Halfway to, halfway to Christmas. People are passionate about that. Is it family? Uh, this is a really great time of year for you if it is. A bunch of time uh, with family. Is it, is it a hobby? Uh, I had a, um, a friend that was really into a variety of things, you know, woodworking, uh, metalwork. At one point, he was into beekeeping for a while. He, he loved his hobbies. And the first time I ever thought about this issue, really, this idea of passion and zeal, the, the color orange, I was reading a biography of the Apostle Paul. Uh, over, over the summer, and uh, the writer of this biography was describing the passion and the zeal of Paul. And some of this for Paul, I really think it was just natural personality was, was part of it, that he came kind of out of the womb excited and, and ready to get at it, you know. Um, but some of it was also his training, that the book laid into detail about how the Apostle Paul was raised, that the nation of Israel needed to be wholly devoted to God. And this is how he was raised, that God wanted Israel to be devoted to him. And that one person's lack of devotion sometimes would result in God disciplining the whole nation. And so Paul always grew up feeling like, I don't want to be that person. Right? I want to be wholly devoted to my God. But it also caused him to have zeal for other people's righteousness, right? That I want to make sure nobody else is leading the nation astray. And so 
He was passionate, and this passion led him uh, for a chunk of his early adult life to persecute and kill Christians that he believed were a threat to Judaism. And so this was just kind of his background. And you may remember his story that he was on the road to Damascus one day. He was going to persecute Christians. This was, of course, before he was a Christian. And he was going to persecute Christians. And a bright light shone in his face, resurrected Jesus, appeared to him. And it changed Paul's life forever. And it should not surprise us at all that in addition to changing his life, it also changed his passion and it changed his zeal. Years later, he would uh, write this to the church in Philippi. And this is just, I think this passage is just classic Paul to me. He said, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Yeah, you got to read it that way. You want to go into battle over this? I got more. All right? I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. All right? So he's describing his life before he met Jesus. You want to compare resumes? Paul said, I'm passionate about that. Let's compare resumes. Then I met Christ. He says this, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me, uh, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the passion? You hear the zeal? This is the Apostle Paul. And I think it's um, a time for a little break here in the sermon, just for a minute, to talk about, I think there are different categories when it comes to zeal and when it comes to passions. Uh, the first category I would put on the screen for you here is interests, right? That there are these things that just naturally interest you, but you spend very little money and very little time on them. If you're wandering through a bookstore, they still have a few of those these days, don't, don't they? But if you're wandering through a bookstore, you might stop and grab a book on the, the topic. If you're scrolling through Netflix and you see a special, you might pause to watch it. You're interested. And then there are hobbies, and this is where some significant time and some significant energy can go into one of your interests. For me, I mentioned it earlier, like Michigan State football and basketball, we watch the games, we talk about it, we put time into it. When our son uh, Sam gets really mad at us, you know, and we're kind of getting on him a little bit, he'll say, why don't you guys just go watch basketball, right? So he knows this is one of our hobbies, right? And then there are passions, right? And this is where right, you can mistake interests, you can mistake hobbies, you don't want to mistake passions, right? I have a passion for my children, right? I have a passion for my wife. I have a passion for my relationships. Cheryl and my children are not hobbies, right? They're not even interests. They're passions. And that's the first category, that you don't want to make a mistake on your passions. And then there's zeal. 
right, the way the Bible translates this word, it would sometimes be called ardent zeal, right? This is a word in the Bible that describes, this is the engine that drives your life. This is the engine that drives the automobile of your life. It is, to describe it this way, zeal would be the passion that is over all other passions. It is the thing that is like the most important. And you can see what it became for Paul as he's writing this. His passion became knowing Christ. You heard that in his writing, right? Knowing Christ, following Christ, serving Christ. How many different ways did he have to articulate that in that passage? This was his zeal. I don't know if Paul had hobbies. I bet he did. I don't know if he had interest. Maybe, you know, he was into beekeeping. Who knows, right? He may have had interest. He didn't really write about those. But we know what his passions were. He had a lot of passion for a lot of relationships that he was in. And we know where his zeal was. His zeal was in knowing, worshiping, and following Christ. And here's why this is so important. Paul will look back on a former season of his life when his zeal wasn't for Jesus and his passion wasn't in the right place. And here's what he says. I consider that season of my life a loss. I consider it one passage says rubbish, garbage. And this is the danger of misplaced zeal. You can get your interests wrong. You can get your hobbies wrong. Do not get your zeal wrong. This is the danger of misplaced zeal. It is the time of your life where you are able to look back and you said, man, alive. And you're in a season where you know Christ really well and you look back on a season where that just wasn't important to you and you look back and say, man, I gave my life to rubbish. Right? I, I gave my life to garbage. And, and Paul would say, I don't want you to get too far down the road and say the thing that mattered most to me, the engine that drove my life was manure, rubbish, garbage. And my prayer for us is that if this is us and we can look back and say, man, this is more than a hobby. This is more than an interest. This is actually the driving focus of my life. And I don't think it should be. My prayer is that we will drop that thing and, and we will invest our life and our zeal and our passion back into Jesus and back into the relationships that he has given us to invest in. So, and it's never, ever, I don't believe it's ever too late to do that. I, I really don't. My grandfather, I've told you his story before, for a huge chunk of his life, my grandfather was an alcoholic. And I think that his children would say that that was a driving zeal of his life, is figuring out how he was going to get his next drink, getting his next drink, and consuming it. Um, right around the time I was born, or shortly thereafter, he uh, uh, had an incident in a bar that went pretty poorly. It's a long story and not appropriate for church. But anyway, um, he decided to give up drinking, and uh, he did that. But from then on out, I think that he would say, all right, that the then passion of his life was his hobbies. He had retired by that point. He loved gardening. I think that this was a passion of his life. It was a zeal. And then later on in life, my grandfather was near 70 years old. He had a health crisis. He gave his life to Jesus. And I am telling you, at 70 years old, I watched his passion changed, and I watched his zeal change. So I know it is never too late for this to happen, that all of a sudden my grandfather, who I, I had never known him as an alcoholic, but I had known him as very zealous and passionate about his hobbies, I watched that change from hobbies to God, and that just became his num number one passion. So you're never too late to change. So as you know, we've been in the book of Psalms, so I want you to turn over to Psalm 69. I want to show you this in the book of Psalms. 
um, in, in, in uh, Psalm 69. David is the author of this psalm. We don't know exactly what's going on uh, with David in this psalm, but we know that he's having a hard time. Uh, you'll see the depth of the hard time he's having in a minute. Um, and we also know that Psalm 69 is one of, if not the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus quotes this psalm, Paul quotes this psalm, and Peter quotes this psalm. So kind of a big chunk of the, uh, of the New Testament, uh, of the writers of the New Testament, all quote this psalm. And it's a really interesting one. So let's, I'll put it on the screen for you. Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. How's that for an opening line, right? <laughs> you ever felt that way? The water is up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. There, those who hate me, uh, those who hate me without reason, outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake. Shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Here's verse 9. For zeal for your house consumes me. The insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of drunkards. And we're just going to stop there. But hey, you, you should read the rest of it because it's just as chippy and happy uh, as, as it goes on. So, but we're going we're gonna to stop it there. Right? I love the line, right? A zeal for your house consumes me. And what I love about this line is that everybody knows that certain things are done a certain way at your house, right? So at our house, we kind of limit screen time a little bit all throughout the week. And then on Friday night, uh, we have family movie night. And a lot of times we'll make pizza or order pizza. Um, and uh, we'll sit on the couch, eat, eat pizza and watch a movie. And then kind of Saturday and Sunday, we're more lax about media and screens and all that sort of stuff. That, that's, how, that's how things are done at my house. But things are done a certain way at your house as well. And for a lot of this psalm, David is describing how things are done in the house of the wicked, right? Notice some of the things he said. They hate me for no reason. They scorn my name. They make fun of me. They are like floodwaters who overwhelm me with their words and with their actions. And this is how he is describing the house of the wicked. And in the middle of the psalm, David is just overwhelmed by how things then operate in comparison to the house of the wicked, how things operate in God's house, with God's, where God rules and reigns. So God's house is a God of grace, amen? God's house is a house of peace. God's house is a house with commands, but they are the commands of a loving father. God's house is a house of joy. God's house is a house where justice rules the day. God's house is a house where we serve and love one another. And David will say, man, zeal for your house, God, it consumes me. Especially when I consider the house of the wicked, how they operate and how they do things and how they operate. When I compare it to that, man, God, zeal for your house 
consumes me. And this, like I said, this psalm is actually quoted quite a bit in the New Testament. Um, One of these stories we actually just hit on a few weeks ago, but I want to hit on it uh, again because I think it's so important. It's uh, from the life of Jesus, and it says this. When it came, when it was almost time for Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others were sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of the cords and drove all out of the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get those out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered what is written. Zeal for your house will consume me. Right? So a little bit of background on the story. So if you were going to Jerusalem for a festival, you would need to go and you would need to sacrifice an animal as part of that festival. Now, if you didn't have much money, if you were poor, if you were going through a hard time, as part of the Jewish law, you could sacrifice doves instead, um, instead of something else. That was just part of, part of the law. It was cheaper. And so what is happening in this story is that there are those there that are selling these doves and the poor And those going through a hard time are being taken advantage of. They are being overcharged for the doves. And it angers Jesus. And the reason it angers Jesus is, uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is it's happening in the temple area, and Jesus essentially says, this is not how things are done in my father's house. Right? This is not how it's going to be done in my father's house. In the house of the wicked, we take advantage, right? Everybody knows that. In the house of the wicked, we take advantage. In my father's house, we serve everyone. In the house of the wicked, we call each other names. In the father's house, everybody gets treated with respect. In the house of the wicked, we belittle one another. In my father's house, we honor. In the house of the wicked, we seek to destroy. In my father's house, we build up. Zeal for your house consumes me. Um, It is a passion. The writer of of Psalms and later on Jesus is describing a a person for whose passion and zeal is the Father and the Son. It is a passion to know him better. It is a passion for his will. It is a passion for his way. It is a passion for him. And listen, nobody this morning is coming after your hobbies. (laughs) Your hobbies are safe with me, all right? I think it's good for people to have hobbies. You can have as many hobbies as you want. You can have many interests as you want. Honestly, you can. But let me put this on the screen for you. Don't let anything but God become the engine that drives your life. You do not want to get to the end and discover that you gave your whole life to a hobby. That you gave your whole life to an interest. Don't let anything but God become the engine that drives your life. And this is directly from the Apostle Paul. He said, don't give your life to rubbish. Don't give your life to garbage. If you want to have something as a hobby, have it as a hobby. But don't give your life to anything but God as the driving passion of your life. And Jesus taught this same thing as well. As a matter of fact, years later, or years before, the Apostle Paul, a group of people came to Jesus And they were essentially, they didn't use this phrase, but they were essentially asking him about this idea of zeal and what does this look like in everyday life and how how can we be zealous 
for, for the things of God. And, and let me show you how they asked it. Here's how they asked it. They said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? All right? So essentially, they're asking the same thing. Like, what is this thing all about? What is the most important thing? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. All right? This is important. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law, all the prophets hang on these two commands. I find that sometimes when people have been a Christian for a long time, their passion and their zealousness uh, can wane. And I find that when people have been a Christian for a long time, they can find themselves asking questions like, there's gotta be more, right? There, there's more. They, they read a passage like this and they're like, uh, there's gotta be more. There's got to be more, more to it. And sometimes I've seen people uh, search after stuff and they, they end up buying into teachings that aren't sound or good and they're actually destructive. And can I say to you, the way of Jesus is simple. It is not easy, but it is simple. Jesus would say, if you want to be a person that is zealous for the things of God, it comes down to two categories. Love God. Spend your life trying to know him better and better through Jesus. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. So grow in your love for God. Study him, pray to him. Be in environments like this. Love God more and more and more. And he says the second is like it. Love people. Spend your days trying to figure out the people that God has placed in front of you. How can you love them better? How can you love them more? How can you demonstrate the love you have received? How can you demonstrate that love to them? This is what the zealous life looks like. It is loving God and it is loving people. And I don't want us to substitute any hobby or any interest for that because that is the most important thing. That is the engine that drives our life. And I don't ever want to get to the end of my life and say, man, uh, the engine that drive my life was Michigan State football. If that ends up being the case, I will be depressed, anxiety-ridden, and sad, right? So that's a terrible thing to invest my life in. It's an interest. It's a hobby. But it's not going to be the engine that drives my life. It, It is less than. Love God and love people. Zeal for your house consumes me. And if you want to know what it looks like on a real practical level, that's what it is. Figure out how to love them more. Figure out how to love the people around you more. That's what it looks like. And it's simple, but how many of you know it's not easy? But it's simple. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you uh, for uh, passion, and I want to thank you for zeal. As we get ready to transition into a time of communion, um, I want to pray that we would exercise both these things as we receive communion together as a church family. We thank you for Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. We are having an opportunity right now. Jesus said these were the two greatest commandments, love God and love others. And both of these kind of big banner statements are actually introduced by Jesus when it comes to communion. So we have an opportunity to do both things right now, that we're going to love God right now, and we're going to thank him for sending his son Jesus. We're going to thank him for his grace. We're going to thank him for his righteousness. We're, we're going to love God right now and, and thank him for, for what he did. But Jesus also taught us that there is an element of this time together where we consider, now how can I love the people around me the way Jesus loved me? Now how can I do that? And so this is not a time where it would be inappropriate for you to think about some of your relationships 
for you to think about some of your friendships, for you to think about your family, and to say, man, these are passions that I have. These are people God has placed in my life. How can I love them better? Love God and love people. So we're gonna pass out communion. You'll find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other has some juice representing his blood poured out on the cross so that we can love God. We're no longer blocked uh, from loving God and we have the power and the ability to love each other. So they're gonna pass them out. Just hold on to them and I'll come back up in just a minute and we'll receive them together as a church family.